I see this email about a a dean's fellowship and I ask Tom, hey, do you think I should apply for this? Because this is stuff that I really wanted to do. And I had some decent preliminary data to support that I wasn't just, you know, blowing smoke. That I actually kind of knew what I was doing. And I just thought, you know, I'll throw my hat in the ring and we'll see what happens. And I get an email, congratulations! And and so then I had to actually do all the stuff that <laughs> I said right. I was going to do. <laughs> Welcome to Health and Human Science Matters, a podcast by Colorado State University's College of Health and Human Sciences. I'm your co-host and digital media strategist, Avery Martin. And I'm Matt Hickey, Associate Dean for Research and Graduate Studies. In our college, we make it our mission to optimize human health and well-being through discovery and innovation. Don't just take our word for it. Each episode, we sit down with people who fulfill that mission, our college faculty and staff. And today, we're lucky enough to have one of our inaugural class of Dean's Fellows. So Ali Cavalier is a PhD student in the Human Bioenergetics Program and Dr. Tom Laraka's lab in the Human Performance Clinical Research Laboratory, which is part of the Department of Health and Exercise Science. Ali, welcome. Hi, thank you so much for having me here. Well, thanks for coming. Now, I have a confession to make. Allie and I know one another pretty well. We've sat through many a, a lecture and take-home exam and hallway discussion, so this is particularly fun for me to have Allie come join us for a little while. Awesome. So, Allie, we want to know about you, and we want to know about your scholarship, and we want to start with you. So tell us about Allie, some early memories, some, some interests, uh, you know, issues related to your family you might want to share just to help us to get to know Allie Cavalier. Right. Yeah. So I, I hate to be one of those people, but I really do feel like I've always been interested in science and particularly like human medical science. Um, I could trace it back to got at least eighth grade. I started kind of learning about infectious diseases and I got really into the plague for a while. Wow. I say for a while, I still find infectious diseases like the plague very interesting. Um, but in high school, I had an amazing biology teacher and we got into the genetics of kind of underlying certain uh, health conditions. And I thought, I'm going to be a geneticist. This is it. This is totally what I'm going to do. So I get to college. I did my undergrad at the University of Colorado Boulder. And I started as a molecular cellular developmental biology major. First semester, they, you know, you really hit the ground running. You start taking a intro MCDB class. So it's basically molecular biology, genetics right off the bat. And immediately I knew like, oh, I don't actually like genetics. Oh, this kind of <laughs> this is this is not it for me. Like the the part that I found interesting was stuff going on at a cellular level and then extrapolating that out to a whole organism. Mm. But when you're just learning molecular biology, they don't really worry about taking it to whole organism systemic levels because they're really focused on you knowing the nitty gritty molecular stuff. So I start my freshman year in MCDB and then by October of my freshman year, oh my. I have switched to integrative physiology, wow, which quick. is, yeah, I, I thought I knew, and I quickly learned that I did not know. Now, have you always been that decisive? That, that's a pretty pretty rapid response yeah, there, right? Definitely. Oh, absolutely not. Um, <laughs> you know, rewind about six months before that, when you have to actually commit mm. during your senior year, say, like, this is where I'm going to go. I had 
a breakdown in my parents' dining room. Like, I'm only 18. How am I supposed to make this kind of decision? (laughs) And I was totally freaking out because I get decision anxiety really, really bad. I think I was just so unhappy with where I thought it was going to go that I knew I just, I needed to change something. And it turned out being an excellent decision because the integrative physiology department was where I really kind of found my home. And I found my people and I made a lot of good friends. I made a lot of good faculty friends, which are always good to have. Indeed. And then in my, I think my second half of my freshman year, so like April, I ended up adding neuroscience as a second major because I'd like to be painfully busy, apparently. <laughs> um Cause I was like, oh, well, there's not that much, there's not that much extra stuff that I have to take. They overlap pretty well. And of course, you know, the background stuff over the ancillary coursework, you have to take chemistry, you have to take biology, but there's also a lot of other stuff that you have to take. So I ended up being like full course load all four years and taking summer classes all summer, every summer. Wow. Just so I could try to still get out of there in four years. My gosh. You're not afraid of hard work, obviously. Well, yeah. <laughs> I guess I work well under pressure. Maybe I need to keep busy. I don't know what to do with free time. <laughs> Going back as far as I can really remember, I've been really interested in science. But there's also a time in high school where I thought, no, I'm not going to do science at all. I was in orchestra. I did music for most of my life. What did you play? Viola. I oh, started really? in nice. fifth grade. I thought my band teacher at my elementary school was before we had a designated orchestra teacher. She's like, you're totally going to play the flute. I went and did the like fifth grade, go try out all the instruments, tried to play the flute, gave myself a headache because I didn't know how. And I was like, absolutely not. This is not going to work for me. But I didn't want to play violin because I was one of one of those contrarian little kids. And I was like, everyone plays a violin. Mm-hmm. I don't play the viola because it's like a small cello. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I played that fifth grade through high school. And I considered when I was in high school, maybe I want to do music performance. Cool. I'm really interested in history. So I was pretty dead set on being a history major for a while. And my parents said, no, we're not paying for you to study history, (laughs) which I don't love, but it ended up being the right choice for me because I got into my science coursework in college and just fell in love with it. And I thought I was going to be a doctor, a medical doctor because I'm so interested in medicine and human health. But really, all I wanted to do that I realized in there was, all I wanted to do was address the really hard problems. I wanted to find the answer to the questions. I thought if I was gonna be a doctor, I wanna be Dr. House, where every episode (laughs) is a different, really tricky problem that only I can solve. Mm -hmm. So I I started doing research at the tail end of my junior year. Okay. Um, I had been an undergraduate TA for the human anatomy lab, uh-huh. um, paired up with a graduate student, and we knew each other pretty well, and I got to talking, and I kind of pestered her like, hey, you know, if you never need an undergrad, if you ever need one, I can be your undergrad. I'll help you take care of your mice. Yeah, yeah. And eventually, that actually happened, so I started in Dr. Tom Johnson's lab at CU Boulder, um, and... Then I realized, wow, no, research is exactly what I want to do. I thought I wanted to go to medical school, be a doctor or whatever, but having to a certain extent 
like total control over your project right. and being able to decide like where you want to take it. And maybe you end up going in a different direction than you thought, but it's ultimately all to answer the question that you kind of wanted to ask in the first place, sure. yeah. which I just thought was amazing. So I was doing that, studying aging in mice. Mm -hmm. Got started on the aging track pretty early there. And then my senior year, I took a cell physiology lab back to kind of more molecular stuff again, though when you're in neuroscience, there is no real (laughs) non-molecular aspect to it. And I was in Dr. Chris Link's class and I went up and asked him like, hey, you study neurodegeneration. I'm really interested in neurodegeneration. I also have work study. Can I be in your lab? And maybe you can pay me to work there? And he Uh said, sure, why not? So I went and started working in his lab with him as an undergrad, doing the menial tasks that are easy to learn at first. He does C. elegans work, doing like little nematodes that usually live in the soil. But they turn out to be a really good model for a lot of molecular mechanisms of human disease because about 40% of their genes, humans have some sort of human version. So you can look at, you know, we want to know what happens if we knock down this um, insulin receptor in worms and see if we can extrapolate that out to humans who have insulin receptor deficiencies or inadequacies or something like that. Sure. And so I did a lot of that and I ended up meaning Dr. Tom Waraka, who was doing his postdoc there, and I sort of got handed to him as his little helper monkey. (laughs) And (laughs) it ended up working out great because Tom has been an excellent mentor and he's really fun to work with, fun to do science with. And then when he got offered a faculty position, he was like, can I can I maybe come with you? That's right. Head up north of Boulder for a little while. Yeah. Well, he actually... (laughs) I was applying to graduate school because I knew that, you know, you have a bachelor's in physiology and neuroscience. You're either going to medical school or you're going to graduate school. Mm-hmm. It's not like I can go get a job with a bachelor's in neuroscience. Right. Yeah. right. So I knew, well, I don't want to do medical school. So I guess I'll go to graduate school. And I knew that I wanted to do kind of the, the, full, the full path, sure. terminal degree, kind of get the Ph.D., be Dr. Cavalier. It's got a ring to it, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. It sounds cool. Only one in my family so far. That's nice. So, I mean, my mom's sister has her PhD, but in terms of like my immediate family and then all of my dad's side and most of my mom's side, there's most people, they, if they went to college, it was just a bachelor's degree. So it was kind of this... Thing. I was like, I'm going to go and I'm going to be Dr. Cavalier and I'm going to be the first one. And it was, seemed like it was a good idea. So I started applying and didn't get in anywhere the first time around because I only applied to PhD programs, which was maybe not the smartest choice. And then I started the next cycle applying to master's and PhD programs. And I applied to the master's program up here at CSU in health and exercise science, mostly because Tom was getting his faculty position in health and exercise science, and he asked if I would be his first grad student. Yeah, lucky for us. That's and I was great. looking for a spot anyway, yeah. because 
things were not looking so hot on the application front. <laughs> so it sort of worked out perfectly that I was able to kind of hitch my wagon to his and follow him up here. And I've been here ever since. Then you had the opportunity to take advantage of our new dean's vision for scholarship. We, this college doesn't have a long history of dean's fellows, right? We're, we're on our second cohort right now. So you and, and Reagan Miller from HDFS were a part of our first team. So tell us a little bit about when that got on your radar screen and, and what prompted you to pursue that opportunity. Well, thinking back, I, um, I remember seeing some sort of email about it. I actually read the emails for the most part that get sent to me. Yeah. Um, and I had taken the, the research design course. Um, With yours truly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was in my humble yet highly accurate opinion. Uh, yes. It was an excellent course uh, where we had to write a mock pre-doctoral fellowship. Uh -huh. And so I had this document based on work that I was already doing in my lab. And then I see this email about a, a Dean's fellowship. And I asked Tom, hey, do you think I should apply for this? I wasn't technically a PhD student at the time. My first year, I was a master's student. And then I went and begged and pleaded in Dr. Hickey's office <laughs> to, to ask if they would let me transition to the PhD program because I knew that's what I wanted to do. And eventually they said yes, but I wasn't going to be a PhD student until the summer after the applications were due. But apparently that was going to be okay. So I ended up taking my gigantic like 18-page grant proposal from research design and having to take the proposed study in that document and kind of package it into the Dean's Fellow application because this is stuff that I really wanted to do. Sure. And I had some decent preliminary data to support that I wasn't just, you know, blowing smoke. I actually kind of knew what I was doing. And so I took this giant document and I trimmed it down to the, I think, what, three pages double spaced at the That's time? a lot of trimming, isn't it? It was a lot of trimming. <laughs> but um, it ended up being a really great opportunity to write and be concise because, well, I have a tendency to ramble and usually you you want to write more because you want to fully explain yourself. Sure. But it was a great, great opportunity to really kind of condense and distill out what the core concepts of what I was trying to study were. And I applied for it and I thought, though, there's no way this is going to happen. You know, there's a bunch of people in my department that were applying for it, a bunch of people in the entire college that are all doing amazing scholarship. And I just thought, you know, I'll throw my hat in the ring and we'll see what happens. And I get an email, mm -hmm. congratulations. And and so then I had to actually do all the stuff yeah, that I said right. I was going to do. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's the fun part B of grantsmanship, right? As you celebrate and you go, oh my God, now I got to roll up my sleeves and sort of get to work. That's great. I want to follow up on, on a couple of questions about your pathway so far before we talk about life in the lab, the LaRocca lab and, and what's going on. So do you retain your interest in music and history outside of your, your flurry of activity as a aspiring scholar? Um, yes, I'm still very interested in music, though I don't necessarily put in the time to do it anymore. Uh -huh. 
I haven't touched my Beulah in a long time. I still have it. Right. Its, name is, it's name is eternal. Oliver. Ah. Um, my boyfriend, who just recently moved up here and moved into my residence, uh, he's also a musician. He went to college for music performance. Mm. Oh, nice. So it kind of just worked out. I'm a musical person. He's a like real musician, I say, maybe a little too uh, self-deprecatingly. But we've kind of started making music together, which has been a really well, cool neat. thing Good that we you. can do. Yeah. And we have we have a band. I say is we're two people and we don't really have much of a presence and it's not like we really play shows or anything. Not that that's <laughs> something that happens right now. But our band name is based off of a historical event because it's the Boston Molasses Disaster. Because <laughs> <laughs> well I well love history. There you yeah. go. And it's like that is an incredible thing to come across my to come across my radar and it also sounds like a really great band name so we did that and i bring some of our history stuff into that and we actually just recorded a song it's not an original song it's a cover of a song that we did you know a couple weeks ago and then we recorded a video for it over the weekend wow okay so I still do some music. Indeed. Um, but it's not as regular as it used to be. Sure. And all of my calluses from viola have kind of worn off at yeah, this point. So every time, again. every time I try to play, my hands hurt because mm -hmm. my fingers aren't used to it anymore. But I tend to opt most of the time, my free time, I spend reading. That was going to be my next question. Yeah. As long as I've known you, you've been a reader, right? Yeah, reading rather than music which i'm sure breaks my orchestra teacher's heart but i think miss g would forgive me and then there's one other piece uh, of my familiarity with you and, and that's cats oh yes so tell us about cats well um my parents told me when i was little i think i was like six they said when you're eight years old you can have a kitten probably expecting me to forget I did not forget. That eighth birthday came around. You were ready. I, I often refer to myself as an elephant because I <laughs> never forget. I remember everything. Mm -hmm. And apparently at six years old, that really stuck in my mind. So I turn eight and I'm like, all right, guys, let's go kitten shopping. <laughs> it's time. And we, you know, shopped around to all the rescues in the Denver area and finding this cat tiny the runt of the litter this tiny little tortoiseshell and she scratched me because she got scared and then we went and looked at some other places and my parents were like so which one which one do you want to get I said I want the one that scratched me and I'm gonna name her sugar because she's really sweet <laughs> <laughs> so I got that cat and she is still kicking she's 18 years old right ah. she you know long hair five pounds very wow. just, just tiny little creature but she's always wanted to be your fur collar sure sure yeah. and she just loves people and attention and whenever i go home to visit my mom we snuggle and she sleeps under the covers with me oh. i tend to attract really social human loving cats People cats, as my boyfriend likes to call them. Uh -huh. So I have Sugar, my people cat, my 18-year-old people cat. And then we up, ended up adopting a pair of cats. We adopted these two nine-month-old litter mates. 
Millie and Gigi, and cats, you know, you don't always get to decide who gets along. Mm-hmm. And sometimes pairing up litter mates does not always go great. You know, siblings fight. Mm-hmm. Happens in humans too. So when I moved up here, Gigi came with me because she's kind of my my shadow. Uh-huh. And then Millie stayed with my mom and my little sister. And sugar. And sugar. All right. Yeah. And we also inherited, well, not inherited because my Nana is still alive. My dad's mom lives in an assisted care facility in Arvada, and she had a cat named Zoe. And when my Nana went into this nursing facility, so Zoe had to go somewhere. So Zoe came to my parents' house because we're the cat people, and we work with, we adopted through Res Dog Rescue, and then we ended up fostering through Res Dog Rescue. So they you're the cat people. Of course you're going to take the cat. So we also have Zoe. So my mom has three cats at her house. And Zoe's kind of like a family heirloom. I imagine if my mom ever moves away and doesn't want to take Zoe with her, she will come to live with me because that is just the natural progression of things. Sure, sure. And then, you know, eventually, I mean, I have I have a shadow cat that likes to hang out with me. I have Goose, who is basically a dog. He's friendly. He wants to be friends with everyone that he meets. He's harness trained. We go on walks. And so I told my boyfriend that I have to get a third cat. So I have like a little lap cat. Exactly. Because I don't have a lap cat. I have the whole spectrum. I mean, Sugar trained me from an early age that cats want to sit on you and they want to snuggle with you. So I told him, if you want to get a dog, I'm I'm allowed to get another cat. That's (laughs) good for you. So, so life off campus is equally interesting for yes. Ellie by the sounds of it. <laughs> so let me take you into the lab. You're, you're in Tom LaRocca's lab uh, working on your PhD. Tell, tell us about a day in the life of the LaRocca lab and, and you know, your, your lab buddies and, and what are you most excited about as you head to the lab every morning? So the HealthSpan Biology Lab, we have an official name now. We didn't for a while, but the HealthSpan Biology Lab, we do a lot of different kinds of stuff. So it's it's kind of hard to say that the day in the life is ever Indeed. really yeah. consistent mm-hmm. because we do a lot of, we work in a lot of different models, very translational approach from uh, working in different organisms and doing lab work and also a lot of computer work. So I go in there. I have um, two other fellow PhD students that have joined me in the lab. I kind of recruited. I actually talked one of our master's students into joining our lab when she finished. Mm -hmm. So we have the two PhD students, our amazing recently uh, NIH-funded postdoc, Devin. And then we've just brought in some uh, undergrads to kind of bring them in and help them get used to research and what it's like. We do a lot of uh, sequencing work. So treating, you know, usually cells, human primary cells Mm -hmm. in a dish, and we treat them with different compounds. My project specifically has been focusing on chemotherapy as a model of premature brain aging. Mm. So I grow these human cells in a dish and I treat them with this chemo drug, and then I want to know what are they actually doing because the cells can't tell you that they don't feel good. Right. So then I have a whole slew of assays that you can do. You can look at proteins to look for, say, inflammation, which is a common response to chemotherapy. 
So I will look for proteins uh, that are inflammatory in these cells. But then we've also done a lot of uh, sequencing, kind of big data type stuff. So you want to know what's happening at the protein level. But the protein level doesn't always tell you the whole story because there are a lot of things that don't necessarily translate to protein. So we do um, RNA sequencing. So the central dogma of biology, you know, use the formal term is you have DNA, which is your genes, your genome, and then your DNA gets transcribed into RNA. And then that RNA, at least a portion of it, gets turned into protein. And so we do RNA sequencing, which kind of tells you what parts of the genome are being expressed. And so we do a lot of that to kind of look at, zoom in a little bit on the cells and see what, what's actually happening at a gene expression level. So we do a lot of that. And once you get the RNA out of the cells and you send it off for sequencing, then it's a lot of computer work. Yeah. I end up spending half my time in the wet lab doing cell culture, and then the other half sitting at my computer trying to make sense of all the sequencing data, Indeed. which required a lot more coding in computer science than I was prepared for. Because yeah. <laughs> it, it's called bioinformatics. So trying to get biological significance from these giant 16 gigabyte files mm -hmm. where the whole file is sequencing of your RNA. So just all of it. Yeah. And they're massive or, you know, each A, G, T, and C that corresponds to nucleotide in the genome. And of course this is RNA. So T's are used, but that's a little getting in the weeds. <laughs> but you try, you try to make sense of it and it's can be very frustrating because it's hard to talk to computers in a way that that you both understand. Computers don't speak the same language as us not, often, <laughs> but it's, I've come to really love it. It's really daunting to learn how to, like how to code. It sounds so threatening and you can't help but think of like you're a hacker, but I've come to really love this kind of computational biology approach to seeing what's happening in the cells and measuring it in proteins that you can kind of translate that protein expression to kind of a more whole body thing. So if this chemo drug is increasing inflammation, inflammation when you are not sick is generally not good. And then you can see what that does say in the brain, which doesn't have a whole lot of room for inflammation, yeah. but that doesn't necessarily tell you what happened before for the protein changes. So it's nice to be able to look at it from a bunch of different stages in that process. That's great. So, you know, making meaning of data is a challenge for any scientist. It's also part of the fun, frankly. And of course, it, you know, we find ourselves now attempting to make meaning by talking to software packages. But the fun, of course, is you get to go to Journal Club or Tom's office and, you know, bring some of this metadata with you and, and have the interpersonal interaction of trying to make meaning of this as well. It's really wild. But it gets far more complicated when you're talking about the volumes of data that you generate, right? A data point versus tens of thousands of data points that are in this complex web of, of 
you know, disease development, et cetera. It's really right. Wild. Yeah. I mean, 26,000 genes and we're sequencing all of them. Yeah. My and then goodness. you got to try to figure out what's actually going on and what if this actually matters because, you know, things change, right. but you have to figure out based on what changed, was it just because it was Tuesday instead of Wednesday mm-hmm. or did it change because of what you actually did to it? Exactly. So you end up having to do a lot of replicates and a lot of repeating. They call it research for a reason (laughs) Um, to try to figure out what's actually significant at a biological level. Indeed. So, you know, this is almost a cliche, this question. It's the old imagine yourself five years down the road scenario, right? What's Allie doing five years down the road? Well, hopefully I'm not still doing my PhD. Indeed. Dr. Cavalier. <laughs> yes. At that point, hopefully. Um, I'm still kind of on the fence about that. Or maybe on the fence is a little too too close to a decision. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> on the fence kind of implies being at the precipice. And I think I'm sort of looking at the fence from across the field, deciding sure. if I'm going to walk up to it anytime soon. Um, I've. I've gotten really used to being in academia and I really like the people that I've gotten to know and I kind of like the communal aspect of being in academic research. So I think I would like to stay in academia when I finish, go do a postdoc somewhere at a university, but I don't know if I want to be a PI. I don't know if I want to lead my own lab. The Cavalier lab sounds really cool. It does. But... It's also very daunting. So I I haven't really decided where I'm at yet, yet, but five years from now, I imagine I will be doing a postdoc, doing something in the realm of brain aging, probably more computational stuff or continuing to do the computational stuff. Because I really like it, and I really like how complex and diverse it is. You can look at a bunch of different types of things and answer a bunch of different kinds of questions with the computational work. So I think I'll probably be doing that. And hopefully my F31 project looking at sequencing and uh, genetic changes underlying the development of Alzheimer's disease, maybe I will have figured something out that will help Alzheimer's disease. I mean, we can't really help once the disease has happened, but maybe we can figure out why it's happening, we could try to stop that. So that's what I'm gonna try to do for this kind of latter half of my PhD. And I, I'm really interested in neurodegenerative diseases and Alzheimer's disease. So there's, I've started scoping out postdocs where, where I'm gonna be. And I have, it's pretty much all people studying brain aging and Alzheimer's. So I imagine I will be doing a lot of that. That's great. Alzheimer's and sequencing and maybe I'll go back to worms. Maybe you I'll work know. with worms again. Yeah. Yeah. Doesn't cool. sound like there's a fence then. No. It sounds like you got you well to figure said. it out. Yeah. Well, said. well, but I also might just jump ship and go go to industry or or maybe I'll, I don't know, open a cat rescue, buy, buy, a, <laughs> buy a property somewhere with a lot of land and be a senior cat sanctuary. Who knows? Yeah. Boston molasses might take off too. Yeah, BMD. You never know. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. 
I have two related questions and we'll wrap things up. So, and these are, these are sort of speaking to the institutional landscape, right? So, you know, you're, you're training in the Department of Health and Exercise Science. It's, it's situated within this College of Health and Human Sciences. Tell us a little bit about how much you've reflected on, on that particular landscape and what you like best about the College of Health and, and Human Sciences. You could be anywhere, and we're lucky enough to have you here. Well, I'm lucky enough to be here. It's been a really great opportunity for me. Um, I really, I can only speak to, you know, health and exercise science, though we have some collaborators in uh, some of the other departments. Mm -hmm. um, I, I love how diverse our department is. So we study health span, so not necessarily how long you live, but how long you live while being healthy. Mm -hmm. But our department has so many different people it's health and exercise science. So there's some people that study just the exercise part, sure. which is, of course, essential for health. But then we sort of focus more on the health aspect of it. And it's just so interesting to hear about all the different kinds of work that people are doing, all with the same common goal of trying to have people be healthier for longer, which is really an incredible mission that I never thought I would get to be a part of. And I really love that I can take the stuff that I'm doing with cells in a dish and try to translate that to a meaningful impact on human health and hopefully the people in my community where I live. Cause I, I don't have any grandiose ideas that I'm going to be the one that solves Alzheimer's disease, but mm -hmm. maybe I can do something in my research in this amazing diverse department that might actually help someone that I know mm. or someone's grandma that that needs something and maybe I will figure something out that will help stop her from getting sick. That tangible piece is a powerful motivator, isn't it? That's neat. Second part of this is the institutional scale. And again, I'm not sure, you know, we don't sort of insist that you all reflect on such things, but you know, CSU is a land grant. That that's a particular niche within the higher education landscape. And I wonder if you've had any thoughts about what it means to be training at a land grant institution as opposed to again anywhere else. I've kind of harped on this a little bit, but the whole idea behind the lab that I'm in and the research that I do is this translational bench to bedside, as it were, kind of science where you're doing something and you go back and forth between different models but ultimately you want it to impact real people with real problems and real real things that need to be solved and the the community aspect of the the land grant institution that really is trying to give back to the community i really that that's what our research is all about we're trying to take something, answer some sort of question that seems really convoluted and complicated, and who knows where we're going to start. And we want to we want to translate it out to our community. We want to help the people that are here supporting us. We want to support them right back, and we want to take the things that we learn about human health and help make our community healthier. And that's the whole point of the translational research. If it only works in cells in a dish, it doesn't necessarily matter. But doing stuff that you can directly apply 
to say someone's grandma or, you know, just the general population in our community. Having people be healthier for longer doesn't only apply to old people. It's something that starts, you know, right now. I'm 26. There's some stuff that I could probably be doing to help myself age a little more gracefully. And I think that's important to be able to disseminate out to our community because there's some things that people don't know or it's just not well publicized. And I really think it's important for people in my position to be able to explain it to the general public in a way that they find useful and informative. That's the land-grant mission in action right there. Beautifully said. Nice job. So let me close by congratulating you on being part of the inaugural class of Dean's Fellows and tell you that I count myself fortunate to be in the same department as you. I look forward to your next couple of years and we're at a time of year where we're, we're seeing announcements for defenses coming out left and right. And um, it's going to be fun to see you defend when the time is appropriate. And we'll see what's on the other side of the fence a few years down the road. <laughs> I'm, I'm looking forward to it. So thanks for coming to join us today. We really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. And that's our show. Thank you for tuning in to Health and Human Science Matters. If you want to learn more about our CSU College of Health and Human Sciences, go to chhs.colostate.edu. Here, here.